we do celebrate the gospel in its fullness at Christmas. We must, Christians. Uh, Today we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 53. And by way of introduction, I simply want to uh, let you know that this coming week, uh, this coming week I'll be traveling. Uh, Most of my family will be traveling with me uh, to North Carolina for my graduation. So uh, Wednesday to Saturday. I promise I didn't do that for another round of applause, uh, but uh, I will be graduating. So I'm telling you this because I won't be around Wednesday through Saturday, and it's a good long trip, so it'll take us uh, most of daylight Wednesday to, to get there. But uh, again, I do thank you for your support along the way and, and uh, your patience. And, and to be honest with you, being in school has caused me to develop some pretty bad habits when it comes to uh, pastoral work and especially preaching. And I'm hoping that as I sort of recover good habits and preparing to preach and preaching to you, that that will bear fruit in uh, clarity and the conviction, uh, all of these things that are necessary when we go to the Word. So I'm, I have longed for these days for a very long time, and I'm thankful they are uh, finally here. And uh, so uh, Friday is the conclusion of that uh, chapter uh, in my life, and uh, I could not be more thankful. And uh, there's going to be a live stream so uh, if anybody cares to watch it, I'll send you the link, okay? You can watch me graduate. Okay, uh, now going into Isaiah chapter 53, give you some context here. Um, this, this is a, the fourth of four servant songs. And so we read of the suffering servant here, but there are a few songs here that Isaiah has been unpacking to increasingly point to Jesus and As he gets to this fourth uh, song, it's increasingly about his suffering. But this becomes the foundation for an everlasting covenant that Isaiah prophesies here in the broader context. So the promises made to the people regarding the covenant and the coming salvation, they lead to the need for the Lord to act So in chapter 51 and verse 9, he says, Isaiah says, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Alec Motyer tells us that Isaiah is letting the suspense mount as he talks about these things. And then he says, we meet the arm of the Lord who accomplishes peace with God establishes people in righteousness and summons the whole world to this pardon found in him and a pilgrimage of faith. All of this comes by the suffering of God's chosen servant. So let's read here in chapter 53, verses 1 through 4. says, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. 
He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And then verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do ask for your blessing upon us today as we open up your word to view this suffering servant, to view the promised king, to view the shoot from the stump of Jesse, the branch from his root. Father, let all of our affection, all of our worship, all of our devotion be given to Jesus now and forevermore. We pray these things, asking for the help of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. The title this morning is Unwilling and Unable. Unwilling and Unable. Hopefully you'll see that begin to unfold as we walk through the text. I want to remind you that last week we we examined our need for the zeal of the Lord which is renewed through faith in the promised king. So today, we now discover the revelation of that king, that shoot from the stump of Jesse, that righteous branch. He is finally, as Isaiah is prophesying, at his point. He has come, okay? The greatest reason for zeal, zeal for God, zeal for righteousness, zeal for justice, zeal for eternal salvation, zeal that God is with us forevermore, that reason is here, but there's a problem. Our condition is such that initially we are unwilling and unable to accept him. He's unimpressive. He couldn't be the king of promise, could he? His suffering, that is repulsive. I need a king, not someone who dies. This is how our flesh responds to the truth of God's anointed one. And so our theme today A merely human appraisal of the suffering servant resists his atoning work. A merely human appraisal of the suffering servant resists his atoning work. So I want to give you two points today dealing with our condition, two aspects of our condition. So first off, in our condition, we lack understanding. In our condition, we lack understanding from verse 2. You notice how Isaiah picks up on the language from last week, Isaiah 11.1, like a young plant or a shoot, like a root out of dry ground. Isaiah is already taking us back to Jesse's stump, the righteous branch, the king. So it puzzles his hearers and it puzzles us that the king is also claimed to be the suffering servant. That doesn't make sense. The king is supposed to usher in our glorious victory right in the face of all of our enemies, but his his suffering and his disfigurement is 
as we said, repulsive. It is a turn off for our king to be this guy too. He's stricken by God, smitten and afflicted. This can't be, this can't be the truth. Our flesh cries out. That's not the king I want. We lack understanding, folks. We lack understanding. There's a few, a few ways that we can point to where he doesn't, he doesn't really fit what we want, what we expect. As Isaiah unpacks it here, first off, he is ordinary in origin. He is ordinary in origin. I don't want to give you a note. I'm leaning a lot on Alec Motyer today. Uh, I want to give credit where credit is due. Jesus here, ordinary in origin. So think about the birth narrative, the story of how it all went down. The, the census takes Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem, just another citizen to be numbered. You know, Joseph would have left Mary because something wasn't right about this situation, but he didn't. We know why. Born in a stable, smelling of livestock, can't even get a room. They moved to Nazareth, to which Nathaniel would later declare, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? He grew like a normal boy, lived like a normal son, so that people ended up saying, is this not the carpenter's son? Matthew 13, 55. Nothing about his arrival sounds like that of royalty. And so there is no special expectation upon this ordinary child. We lack understanding, and part of the reason is we don't like this ordinary origin. Secondly, his average appearance. He is average in appearance. You would expect such an important person to have some distinctive qualities, a majestic presence, a towering man of strength, some visible evidence that validates his anointing. Y'all know those people. They're, they're those people in your life that it's like they walk in a room and they just command presence. Whether it's their height or their voice. You know, I've heard some people just, you know, they remember the voice of Adrian Rogers, right? When that brother spoke, it's like, whoa, I need to listen to that, right? And you got those people, their presence just gets that kind of attention. And we think, this is what he ought to be like. Yet, as he is revealed, he is average in appearance. Isaiah says, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. You remember when Israel wanted a king like other nations? And God said, no, 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 no. I am your king. Let me be your king. And they said, nah, we want, we want something different. We want something that we understand. And there was a guy named Kish who, as 1 Samuel 9 says, had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. 
There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. And you see what people get when they want what they understand. How'd that go? How'd that go? You know the end of the story. 1 Samuel 31, in national defeat, he fell upon his own sword to end his life. And then where did the next king, where did he come from? Shepherding flocks. Last in line. The runt of the litter. And what did God do? As a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus himself made David the greatest king in the history of Israel. We lack understanding, folks. Part of what rubs us the wrong way is that he is average in appearance. What rubbed people in his day the wrong way, he was average in appearance. He was ordinary in origin. And so all of that makes him undesirable to us. It makes him undesirable to us. And so we tend to give an appraisal to spiritual things with earthly eyes. With human eyes. Man looks on outward appearance, but God knows the heart. See, we need to gain that eternal perspective, that heavenly perspective, because I need to ask you the question what are you looking for? There is some way, even this past week, maybe even this morning, where you have found if you dig deep enough into your own thoughts, your own reactions to other people, if you dig deeply enough, you'll find a way that Jesus just doesn't do quite what you need him to do. What are you looking for? We live in a world that is bent on human wisdom. We live in a society that esteems human wisdom above anything, and so we find what is pragmatic, what is convenient, and we exalt these things. We measure things by what we want, what we understand. And in doing so, the Lord Jesus, and I would argue the local church, the scripture, becomes undesirable to us. Can we say the Christian life? On human appraisal, the Christian life simply is undesirable. And maybe some of you are in it. Then you can say, no, it's, it's not what I expected. But if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, you can say, but I'm not disappointed. Those who believe on him will never be disappointed. So Isaiah is... He's pointing to something that's going on inside of us as we relate to this Jesus, this suffering servant, this promised king, the one who came as he unfolds, the one who came to die. But we lack understanding. He's ordinary, he's average, and he's undesirable to us. But secondly... We love darkness. 
We lack understanding and we love darkness. I want you to see this right here, okay? We lack understanding. And, and unfortunately, in the West, people who are all educated and stuff, they tend to think that our problem is simply a lack of understanding. So if we just explain, we just explain who Jesus is and all the details and let's get the hypostatic union right and let's explain the Trinity. Let's get all these things. I'm not telling you that those things are unimportant. Don't hear me wrong. But we do not account for the need for God to shine the light on our mental, emotional, spiritual darkness. We neglect the fact that in order to believe in Jesus, we must be alive spiritually. And that life comes through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We love darkness. We love darkness. Verse 3 explains that. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Our inability, our unwillingness to even consider how the promised king would also be a suffering servant, how, how the arm of the Lord could seem so regular. It leads us to stick with what we understand. And so, John 3, 19, and this is the judgment, that light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light. People loved the darkness rather than the light. It's not a matter of factual knowledge. It's a, it's a matter of being attached to what you think you know, what you're familiar with. And in this darkness, we see the response. First off, we rejected him. We rejected him. We love darkness, and in the darkness, we rejected him. So you might think that finding him undesirable puts you in sort of a neutral category. You've heard from me over and over again, there's no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. So, okay, he's undesirable. We're good, though. Like, Jesus, do your thing. But, but when you encounter the claim that this is the Savior of the world, then that decision must be made. A response is required, and in our flesh we reject that notion. We can't stand a thought. That's, that's more literally what it means. It's not, it's not like just rejection in the way we understand it, but it's like, I can't stand this. We reject him. Those that seem indifferent to the gospel quickly choose a side when Jesus is said to be the only way of salvation. Lovers of darkness, lovers of darkness would much rather create for themselves a fantasy in the dark about their own morality, about the afterlife, about their own version of salvation in their minds. They create their own source of meaning, their own version of what is true, my truth and your truth. But when the light shines in the darkness, the fantasy is exposed for what it is. 
Christians, maybe you remember, maybe you remember when your fantasy world was exposed by the light of the gospel. You remember what it was like to see your dearest and most worshipped idols disintegrate before you. When your own righteousness or what you perceived to be your own righteousness was perceived, finally revealed by the Holy Spirit to be filth. You were fine believing that your outfit was so fresh and clean. Clean. For those of you that know what I'm referring to. You thought that was fine when you were in the dark. But when the lights came on, you saw your rags, you saw your stains. You know what happens? Even in the dark, your taste buds were affected. You feasted upon the food of your own fantasy, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And when the lights came on, you saw that that food was rotten. Some folks, when the light comes on, They squint and they cry out, get me out of the light because they are lovers of darkness rather than light. Yet God's grace, by God's grace, there are some whose eyes get adjusted by the Holy Spirit. That kind of ophthalmology. There are those whose ears get opened by that Holy Spirit, can we say, audiology, whose hearts encounter that Holy Spirit cardiology, sent by the great physician. The Spirit turns on the light of Jesus and darkness flees, and he says, son, stay in the light. Daughter, Stay in the light. And when the light comes on, by nature, we don't like it. But friends, stay in the light. Walk in the light. Do not reject him. In our condition, we rejected him. In our lost, sinful condition, we rejected him. Furthermore, we disregarded his grief. We disregarded his grief. It says a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now, we need to be careful. The promised one is not one who mopes around and he's sad and, you know, all that comes with that. In fact, he displays the joy of the Lord perfectly. His sorrows were not derived from within They were derived from others, from me, from you. And in the place of others, he bore our griefs, verse 4, and carried our sorrows. Yet in the darkness, we don't acknowledge his grief. Sure, Jesus died. And some of you have probably had the thought, in those moments of unbelief and doubt, you said, yeah, Jesus died, but others have died the same way. And maybe even some in worse ways. But see, you are giving your human appraisal. And in that human appraisal, we fail to see the suffering of the 
eternal arm of the Lord. We fail to see the suffering servant as the supremely unique affliction in immeasurable pain, the deepest possible experience of suffering. So get this, for the divine who is infinite and incomprehensible, for him to suffer the wrath due to sin is to fully drink the cup. I can't explain to you what it would be like for an eternal, infinite person in the Lord Jesus, God himself, to take wrath upon himself. But you know, some of the proof that we disregard is grief. It's not just that people deny his substitutionary atonement, but that those who also, those who claim to know Christ, continue willfully walking in unrepentant sin. But as the scripture says, how can we go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth? By continuing in sin, we treat lightly his shed blood. We love darkness. We love darkness. Isaiah also tells us, says, as one from whom men hide their faces. We recall again that repulsive nature of his suffering. As one from men, one from whom men hide their faces. It says he was despised and we esteemed him not. That word esteem is an accounting term like reconciling accounts. So we do the math on the suffering servant. Matthew says here, when all that the human eye saw and the human mind apprehended was added up, the result was zero. It accounts for nothing. It means nothing to me because I don't want that. I don't think I need that. Our lack of understanding leads us to abandon the truth. Our love of darkness leads us to abandon the truth, bankrupt of the appropriate emotion and effect, affection for, for him, rejecting and disregarding him, misguided in our own stubborn human will. So Matya writes, says to appraise him and conclude that he is nothing, condemns our minds as corrupted by and participants in our sinfulness. Thus, every aspect of human nature is inadequate. Every avenue along which, by nature, we might arrive at the truth and respond to God is closed. It's closed. And you're like, Matt, Christmas is about joy and hope. What are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing exactly what Isaiah is doing right here. You've got nothing to offer. You've got no faith on your own. You don't have what it takes to conjure up what God requires for your salvation. And so the acknowledgement of Jesus as Lord is preceded by the acknowledgement that I am nothing and he is everything. 
You must be bankrupt in yourself before you can be rich in Christ. And so my intent today was to drive you for these 30 minutes into hopelessness so that you might see the glory of the suffering servant so that you might esteem the one born in a stable lying in a manger the king of the universe so Isaiah started off chapter 53 in his question who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed and I will tell you folks today it is not coincidence that we are gathered here and that you're hearing about the suffering servant there is no salvation without revelation why is preaching so important because we get to open up the Bible, God's word, and proclaim this revelation of the suffering servant. This is why I hope you're driven to gather with us every week. Because you know, in your hopeless condition, unwilling, unable to believe, to follow, to love, to worship, in that hopeless condition, you would find your only true hope, which is the Lord Jesus. I can tell you today that the arm of the Lord has been revealed to you. Submit to his reign. Submit to his rule. Follow the Lord Jesus. Confess sin. Turn from that sin. Believe on him. The Bible says, you'll have this eternal salvation. You will be in this eternal covenant. We can't appraise the suffering servant with our puny human minds. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you today as we respond to God's word. Let's pray.